Well, I'd like to welcome you once again to the Palmview Christian Church Sunday morning sermon podcast. Uh, my name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Palmview Christian Church in Central Oregon. And uh, we are going through the Gospel of Luke. We began that last week, and I had a great time as we began to look at the people of hope. And today, I really want to talk about the provision of hope that we actually see in the Christmas story and and the peripheral stories that surround the birth of Jesus uh, found in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2... Uh, of course, we have the, uh, the birth of Jesus coming in, and then we, we uh, see uh, the account beginning in verse 8 of the angels. And it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is Luke 2, 8. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now that passage is describing how the good news began to be spread. An angelic army, that's what a host is, a heavenly host, an angelic army visiting shepherds who were watching over their sheep at night in the hills outside of this bedroom community of Bethlehem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. Now, later on in chapter 2, after the shepherds visit the newborn Savior, they are so filled with joy that they spread the news to everyone that they encounter. Now, last week, again, we we began the series on the Gospel of Luke by looking at some unextraordinary people, Zechariah and Mary, but people who got to be put into an extraordinary story because they were people of hope. They were living with hope. Well, Luke continues the theme of unextraordinary people being placed into this extraordinary story because the shepherds were unextraordinary as well. They'd be gruff, uneducated, working-class people doing their duty as they protected the lambs that would be used for the sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. But the message that was given to these unextraordinary guys was very extraordinary. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the anointed one, the one that God has chosen to bring hope to this world. This message, according to the angel, would be good news of great joy for all the world, for all the people. And this angel army was chanting their worship of God, who was finally bringing the provision that would bring peace to mankind on earth. Peace between God and man, and peace between man and his fellow man. See, we're so used to hearing that part of of Luke 2, of the birth and then the shepherds. And we love it, but we're so used to hearing it that we often forget that there's a, another unextraordinary person 
who shows up in the Christmas story to put into this extraordinary story. He's an old man who has been waiting for such good news as what has been delivered to the shepherds by the angel. And so turn with me then to Luke 2, reading his part of the Christmas story, beginning in verse 22 and following. This is what we read. And when the time came for their purification, talking about Mary and Jesus, and then Joseph would have been accompanying them as well. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Um, and, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. <laughs> his name was Simeon. We know very little about him. We don't know where he was born or who his relatives were. We don't know what he did for a living. We, didn't know, we don't know whether he was rich or if he was poor. We don't know his reputation. We don't know what other people thought of Simeon. But we do know what God thought about Simeon. There in verse 25, God tells us uh, through Luke that uh, Simeon was a righteous and devout man. We are told that he was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, the consolation is the, the, uh, the comfort, uh, the renewed hope uh, for Israel. But more than those things, about being righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation, we are told that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's anointed, which made Simeon, in actuality, a sort of a watchman, right? Somebody who's posted at the gate to, to, to observe and to, to keep track of what's going on and to watch for the, the coming of this long-anticipated arrival, watching for God's Messiah, the Anointed One, to finally deliver this provision of hope that would be the consolation of Israel. And I wonder if it was like Simeon would like every day run to the temple and hang out there. He would just run in anticipation, waiting to see if today was going to be the day that God would deliver 
like waiting for a package to arrive by mail and every day swinging by your mailbox just to see if it finally came. You know, like in uh, that uh, uh, Christmas classic, A Christmas Story, where the little boy, Ralphie, uh, he would listen to the little orphan Annie radio show all the time and then he sent away... Uh, after drinking Ovaltine over and over and over, he sent away for the decoder because there was always a, a secret message at the end of the Little Orphan Annie broadcasts. And finally it came, and he was so excited, he locked himself in the, in, in, in the room, and, and he... He turned the dial on the little decoder so he could uh, uh, he could decode the message that came from there. He was so excited that something finally came, and I, I don't know if you remember this has nothing to do with the the uh, the Christmas story here in Luke, but of course the if you remember that movie, the message that came through was be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Yeah, that wasn't a, a real great message of hope. It, it definitely wasn't a provision of hope. But that's what Simeon's been waiting for. It was some kind of hope. Every day, going to the temple, looking at the faces there, wondering, oh, praying, God, is this the one? And then one day, seeing this young, poor couple. And, and by the way, we, we know that they were poor because... What they were bringing for the purification offering, as required by the Jewish law, was very meager. You see, in Leviticus chapter 12, God had said there is an offering that you are to bring to redeem your firstborn son. And it was supposed to be a year-old lamb um, for the burnt sacrifice and a turtle dove, one turtle dove, for a sin offering. Okay, But... There in Leviticus 12, it says that if a couple was not rich enough to afford a lamb, God would allow them to bring two turtle doves, one for the sin offering and one for the burnt offering to, to take the place of that year-old lamb. And so they, they could bring that to themselves. And that's what Mary and Joseph bring, are two turtle doves. So that's how we know that they are poor. And, and, and so they're, they're not... Again, they're unextraordinary. They, they don't stand out. But as soon as Simeon sees them, the Holy Spirit just comes on him, and he just knew. And then now picture him. Picture him as, as he comes in and he um, holds the baby. He, 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 he holds the baby and... and uh, Takes it from Mary, and I'm sure that she's probably a little freaked out there. I mean, can you imagine what what that would be like to to bring your baby in to to be dedicated to the Lord with with the offering that was prescribed, and all of a sudden this old man that you've never seen before comes up and just grabs your baby? I, I I'm sure that some of you have had something similar happen, maybe in a church, and you're going, I, I'm not sure I want people to hold my baby. But that's what happens, you know. So Simeon grabs the baby and begins to speak this inspired prayer song. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant, talking about himself, now you are letting me, your servant, depart in peace. That means I could die now. I can die in peace according to your word. You've kept me alive for all this time. And you'd said that I did not die. I would not die until I see the Lord's anointed. And now 
I can depart in peace according to your word. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And that was it. It's a very short song, but a very powerful song. The Bible tells us that uh, Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said. It was a powerful, powerful song because it highlighted three truths about the provision that was finally here. The provision of hope found in this baby, Jesus, the gift given to mankind. First of all, we see him say that Jesus is God's salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon recognized that what he was looking at when he was holding this little baby boy, that he was looking at God's salvation, the, the, the salvation that God had prepared for all the nations, all the world. He was salvation. See, when you read Jesus' name in Hebrew, it's not Jesus. That's the English equivalent, I guess. It's, it's not Yesu, uh, that would be in Greek, but it is Yeshua. And that Yeshua is actually a contraction that would mean Yehovah, Yehovah, the one true God, will save. Yehovah will save. Saying that in Hebrew as a contraction is Yeshua. That's why actually in the Gospel of Matthew, if you read it in Hebrew, it makes much more sense than English does or, or than even Greek does. Because when the angel says you are to name him Jesus... For he will save their people from their sins. You, you don't catch the connection there, do you? You're to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Okay, well, I guess if you know that Jesus means Savior, that you would know that. But, you know, um, not everybody would, would know that. Uh, definitely not, not in English. In, in Greek, in English, there's no connection between the, the name Jesus and the phrase he will save. But guess what? In Hebrew, it does. Because in Hebrew, it says, name him Yeshua for Yoshua. That's what that means. Yeshua, name him Yeshua for Yoshua, which means name him Yeshua for he will save. Isn't that kind of cool? For the Hebrew, there was this duh connection between the identity of the Messiah, Yeshua, and the purpose of the Messiah, Yoshua, it, it was a play on words. It's a Hebrewism. And that's what we find out in Matthew. Name him Jesus because he's going to save. Well, Luke records Simeon identifying that, understanding that. Because Simeon says, I can leave this life because I have seen this baby. I have seen your salvation. Yeshua is Yoshua. This baby is your salvation. Folks, that's really at the heart of the gospel, is that Jesus is our salvation. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no other, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking about Jesus in that name, Yeshua. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. He is the salvation for man. 
And then in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, of course, when the world hears this, it seems very conceited. Seems like a very conceited claim. How can, how can he say that he's the only way to salvation? Well, first you have to understand why salvation was necessary in the first place before you understand that Jesus is the only way to get there. You, you see, we are sinners. And we are separated from God, even from birth. It seems like all religious systems in the world have a purpose of trying to make us better. They, they understand that we're sinners, and so they teach that there is that they have the plan, they have the path to improvement, and and, and they all these religions in the world say that eventually you can make yourself better, you can achieve either a, a higher state of consciousness, or you can achieve perfection, or you can a, a, achieve this amazing sense of peace. And they'll tell you, listen, it takes discipline and good deeds and such. You're a sinner, but you can make yourself better. You can, you can save yourself. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. However, that's not what the Bible tells us, folks. In fact, when you have this sinless, holy God, there is nothing that anyone who has sin inside of them, there is nothing that a sinful person can do to achieve to set things right again. Why? Because we were born sinful. We are told in the Bible that there is no one righteous in and of ourselves. We all fall short of God's glory. So we needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. And the only one that could do that was not a man, but God coming down in the form of a man. Couldn't just be God because God is spirit, and God as a spirit cannot die. But God putting on flesh, becoming man, can. So Jesus is sent by God to become the incarnation, God putting on flesh, so that he and he alone could live a sinless life, so that when he would go to the cross, he would serve as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the entire world. The best verse that explains this, in my opinion, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what we were powerless to do, Paul tells us in Romans God did for us in the person of Jesus. And so now Jesus is our salvation. He stands in the gap between us and God because he was 100% God and 100% man. He was the bridge between God and mankind. And because of that, he now stands as our only means of salvation. Number two, Simeon says that Jesus was a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the word Gentiles there is actually the word for nations, or more properly understood. You see, the Gentiles were anybody that was not a Jew. So you have Israel, this little country right here in the middle of the Middle East, and then you have the entire rest of the world. So Jesus, Simeon says, is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He was going to be a light to the world. 
Now, that's hard for the world to understand, especially for those living in the West, because, you know, a few hundred years ago, uh, the Western world experienced what history calls the Enlightenment. We, we became enlightened, right? There's a, there was a period in history known as the Dark Ages, and all of a sudden, science became a little bit more understandable, and, and people were, were making a progress in, in the arts and, and in literature and things like that. And all of a sudden, there was this, aha, the light came on. Yeah, see, they, they knew that at one point the world was in darkness, but now the enlightenment has happened, and so now we are no longer in the dark anymore. We, we understand so much more. We can save ourselves. Problem is, is even though there's been the enlightenment and people think that they are in the, 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 the light now, the problem is, is they're still in the dark. And if you don't know you're in darkness, you're never going to understand the importance of coming out of the darkness into the light. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, in the Enlightenment, people thought that they had found the truth, and so they were now enlightened, and now they were living in the light. But no, because there was still wickedness going on in this world, the, the truth was suppressed. There was no truth seen, so the darkness was still there. Paul would go on, what, what may be known about God is plain to the world because God made it plain. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, God has brought the truth out into the light, but men decided that they don't want to see it. They say, well, I never knew that. God says, no, I put it out there in the light for you to see. But then Paul says this here in Romans 1. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And this is what happened. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so though they might claim to be wise, they actually became fools as they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Our world is in darkness and it's crazy how little we have learned and how little we have progressed over the centuries, even though we have gone through the Enlightenment. Though we think we've fi got things figured out, we still have major political conflicts overseas. We have growing hatred between neighbors and, and countrymen. We, we place so little value on human life that we sacrifice our children before they're even born. Even the great experiment of the United States of America, uh, this country that was intended to be reflective of a scriptural city on a hill, has turned out the lights. But Jesus came to shine into the darkness, to be a light for the world. He came to shine not just through himself, but through his people in order for the world that has been swallowed up in darkness to, to actually be able to see their way to life. In his gospel, John proclaims about Jesus, in him was life, and that life was actually the light of men. And he says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not 
overcome it. So Jesus is the light that shines through us, his people. And Jesus called us the light of the world and and told us that our light should be seen. And we must be committed to living in such a way that the world will see what we do, how we live, what we value, and that they would then be drawn into a right understanding of who God is, his character, and his righteousness. So God, through Jesus, gave us provision of hope because Jesus was our salvation and Jesus was the light of the world. And finally, Simeon says that Jesus was also the glory of Israel or the glory of God's people. Now, that statement, the glory, would have been very, very meaningful to the Jews because that word relates to the Old Testament glory of God, the Shekinah glory, Shekinah glory. And that would actually have been representative of the presence of God himself. See, when Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God had given the Israelites several reminders of his presence. He would lead them by a pillar of cloud by day to show them the way out of Egypt and into the wilderness and eventually over into the the promised land. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He would direct Moses to build a tabernacle, which was essentially a tent of worship where uh, that could be picked up and, and uh, packed up and carried with the people as they would move from place to place to place before they got to the, to the promised land. And, and that tabernacle was where his presence would come down to interact with the priests as they would bring the sacrifices on behalf of the people and the prayers on behalf of the people. And God would then speak to Moses there in the, uh, the tabernacle. And so wherever the, the, the people went you know, through this wilderness experience, wherever they would go, the tabernacle would go, and that represented God's presence with them. Now, don't get me wrong. The glory of God was not imprisoned in that tabernacle, right? Uh, just like God does not live in this building. He's, he, he, you know, he's not limited to this building at all. But it was a place just like this building on a Sunday morning when we all gather together. God would meet with his people there in the, 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 the tabernacle. His Shekinah glory would be experienced there. And there people would understand that God was still with them. They were not alone Now, what an amazing provision for God's people. The promise of God's eternal presence. This this past Thursday, one of our elders sent a a prayer to our leadership at Powell Butte Christian Church with all the things going on in this world, especially with uh, Russia uh, right there um, attacking Ukraine. And and it was a, a... I, I, was, I was finishing up the sermon, and, and this came through, uh, and I thought I needed to share this with the congregation because it really is a prayer for God's glory to be seen again, for God's glory to be experienced again as God would assure us that he is not abandoning his people that because Jesus has come into this world, because Jesus said he would never forsake us or abandon us, that we know that God's presence, even in this dark and fearful time in our world, is there. The prayer goes like this. 
Dear Father, we love you. We trust and worship you alone, for there is no other like you. We trust you with our lives and our futures. Our world has gone crazy, but you never change. You will never leave nor forsake us. You have a plan, and it will prevail. Praise you forever. Father, our hearts are aching for those who are being persecuted, some by their neighbors, others by friends, and even families. Help them, we pray. May they stand firm, calling on you for strength. Some are at war, giving their very lives to remain free, able to worship their God openly and at any time. We pray for a miracle. May they overcome their enemies, and may you be glorified. Yes, Lord, our world is changing. In ourselves, we would be frightened, but your living word tells us not to fear, no matter what our futures hold. You will give us the strength and the courage to persevere, and an eternity in heaven awaits us. You will be glorified, for you are God Almighty, and you are on our side. Whom shall we fear? Our lives on this earth are but a fleeting moment, but eternity will never end. So we praise you, Heavenly Father. Help us live our lives in a manner that honors you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't that powerful? The people of hope being assured that God will fulfill his promise and that his presence will always be with us. The people of hope waiting for God's promise, and that promise came 2,000 years ago. He was born to a virgin, laid in a manger, proclaimed to shepherds by a heavenly army. He was adored by wise men and lived a life then that would reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God. And then he would go to a cross to pay the penalty of the sin of mankind and would be raised to life three days later. And then would ascend back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. All things put under his authority. And one day he's going to come back for his people. The provision of hope. Simeon understood. He saw. He sang a song of praise. A song of praise for salvation. A song of praise for the light of revelation to the world And a song of praise for the glory of God's people to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as I close this message, there's a question that just is being begged to be asked. What do you need? What provision do you most need today in your life? Have you come to a point in your life where you're ready to acknowledge your need for salvation You've been trying to make sure the balance of your life is more good than bad, right? More good deeds than bad deeds. And you, you've been hoping that somehow you're going to make yourself right with God by being more good than bad, and hoping that he's going to bring you into an eternity after your life is over. But are you today ready to admit that you can't do that? That no matter the level of your own righteousness, that you find yourself continually falling short and it's so frustrating and you wish somebody could just come and save you from the sinful nature that so easily entangles you. Or maybe you're recognizing today your need for God to turn on a light 
finally, because you've been stumbling around in the darkness and your shins have scars to prove it and other places as well. You're tired of listening to conflicting philosophies that try to make sense of this life, but they're also sitting there in the darkness and their light that they can shine is no more bright than in anything that you have come up with. And as you dive into these philosophies left and right, you're left empty, disconnected from that divine image that you were created to experience and to know. Or maybe you need to know the presence of God. Maybe you need to know that God is for you. He wants to come into your life. He wants to be with you forever. He wants to develop this relationship with you, to to lead you, to guide you, to help you, to empower you, to encourage you, to live the life that he created you, to live. And you today may need to see the glory of God through the perfect example of Jesus as he came to minister in love and compassion and in truth and in power. Maybe it's a come-to-Jesus moment for you. That's what I'm praying, that if that's what is needed, that you would. So that you would understand that God loved you so much that he gave a provision of hope for you. That provision, just like Simeon saw, is for all people. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, who you are. I don't care about any of that because if, if the provision is for all people, then it's for you. It's for you. And God would love nothing more than for your heart to finally turn to see that gift that he is extending to you in his son Jesus The gift of salvation, the gift of light, the gift of glory, and for you to take that so that you can finally receive in your life that which you have needed most, the provision of hope, a hope for this life and a life to come. All right, that's about uh, what I've got to say today. It's uh, good to have you join us again. And if you're ever in the uh, Central Oregon area on a Sunday morning, we'd love to have you join us uh, at 8.30 or 10.30 or 11.30. It's a a great place with some great people and uh, some uh, great teaching from God's Word. So uh, I want to thank uh, Lisa Welly for getting this uh, podcast up and running. For uh, I'm, I'm grateful for Steve Pittman for... Uh, just uh, keeping an eye and, and a, you know, a great mind going uh, in regards to the technology here at the church and allowing us to have these kinds of uh, opportunities to uh, share the messages with uh, the folks out there online. And um, hopefully you'll join us again next week as we continue in our study in the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Again, my name is Trey, and uh, I thank you for joining us today.